about the second commandment and its relationship to uh, this discussion we've been having about Christianity and the arts. And um, we ended last week uh, talking a lot about uh, this question of images and specifically images related to, um, to God, to Christ, uh, to sort of uh, religious um, uh, depictions of things and uh, made some distinctions and uh, tried to uh, differentiate a little bit and uh, I shared with you my personal conclusion, my personal conviction with regard to, uh, to images being that, um, and I did mention for those who weren't here, that this certainly, uh, even, even in uh, very like-minded circles, uh, is something that is often debated, uh, but I do personally believe that we ought to be very uh, hesitant uh, to, um, to have any kind of images of uh, certainly uh, anything that is supposed to take the place or to be a representative of the Father or uh, the Trinitarian nature of God, but uh, even, uh, even though he came in physical form as a man, um, that uh, we also need to, um, to be careful in trying to represent Christ in images as well. And one of the questions I asked was, what does Jesus look like? We have a lot of assumptions, but the Bible only actually gives us a few uh, very uh, brief uh, glimpses as to certain features about him, but not very many. Things like, we know he had a beard because his beard was plucked out as he went to the cross. Uh, we know that he was an average-looking guy because he was nothing Uh, He was nothing spectacular to look at. It wasn't like he walked around with a glow. And everyone knew uh, just by looking at him, this must be Jesus. Um, And uh, for the most part, that's about it. We can make some assumptions about uh, uh, where he was regionally and maybe in terms of his complexion and maybe uh, he was probably dark-haired and things like that. But we don't know those things. And so um, to... Uh, in, a, in addition to what we have to deal with with the second commandment, we have all these other questions about uh, are we even being somewhat accurate in our depictions and what, uh, and what is the issue with those with regard to how they influence us in our worship and how they impact our hearts and uh, what are we thinking about and what are we uh, what are we imagining in our minds as we worship based on the pictures and the images that we have seen? Um, and so as we talk about that, uh, as we discussed that, we talked a lot about idolatry and the concerns with regard to idolatry and art. And uh, so I want to spend some more time on that this morning and, uh, and think about art for God's sake Art for God's sake. A lot of times you hear artists talk about art for art's sake. And uh, I want to discuss what the, what, what's problematic about that and how, as Christians, uh, we should think about art for God's sake. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, many of you are probably familiar with Emerson. He wrote one time that beauty is its own excuse for being. Beauty is its own excuse for being. What, uh, what does he mean by that, first of all? Yeah. There's, there's no reason outside of itself for existing, essentially. 
So we've, we've had some discussions in here about what is beauty, how do we define that, and we found that's, uh, that's a difficult thing to do. Philosophers have been trying to do that since the beginning of time, um, and uh, the church certainly has a way of understanding beauty. Um, as it's, as, and, and as Christians, we understand that beauty is first and foremost in, in God, that God is all-beautiful. And as a result of God being all beautiful, anything we define objectively as beautiful is as a result of God creating it and God designing it in a specific way in order to reflect to us something that is beautiful in nature. And so to say that beauty is its own excuse for being, that beauty exists in and of itself and has no purposes outside of itself or no need to be understood by anything outside of itself is, um, is a problem, right? It's a problem. Emerson goes uh, too far because even beauty serves the glory of God. That's its primary intention, like all of creation exists to bring glory to God. But the artistry of, uh, of the world uh, is often understood in very different ways. Um, in, in the arts. There's always some who wonder why we need art at all, uh, but we see that in the Bible, and the assumption is that uh, any legitimate calling needs to have some very practical or utilitarian purpose. But we even, we've looked at, and we'll look again at some passages this morning that show that art does have a purpose, but it's not utilitarian in the sense that it, it it ends with something that we can use to necessarily make money or to create a meal or something along those lines. Uh, that sometimes art uh, exists to display something beautiful, and in its display of the beautiful, then we can, when rightly utilizing it, enjoy God all the more and enjoy what He has created. And uh, so some of its features uh, that we see throughout the Bible, this idea of beauty, we see uh, very specifically uh, outlined in things like all of the instructions uh, about the tabernacle, about the temple, and the specificity that God gave with regard to how those things were to be constructed. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. Um, now, a lot of times what you'll see is Bible scholars uh, we'll look at things like the tabernacle and the temple, and they'll try to find spiritual meaning in everything. And, and this is another way of taking things, in my opinion, uh, too far in the other direction, because the assumption, again, is still the same, that this must serve some greater purpose other than existing as art to display something beautiful. And so it's this, uh, it's this mindset of if it doesn't have some spiritual meaning or spiritual purpose behind a color that's used or a shape that's utilized or a design that is created, uh, then, then what's the point? Uh, surely God had some greater spiritual intention behind this, and uh, I think in, in, in many times that has been taken too far as well. Um, and the problem is that artistry as we've talked about, this easily becomes idolatry. And when this happens, art is seen to exist only for its own sake and not for some greater purpose. Uh, the higher purpose to bring glory to God is what we have been talking about. So the giving of receiving 
The giving and receiving of art is as fallen as any other human interaction. And we know that. We know how easy it is to turn the things of this world into idols. And so when we experience art, we always have to ask a question of ourselves. Uh, Whom does this glorify? Who is the intended uh, recipient of the glory of uh, this art? Um, Unwittingly, artists often make art uh, that brings glory to God. It achieves a greater purpose for those who um, engage with the art, even though their intention, many of them, in fact, would be horrified that uh, this is what happened, but their intention is not to bring glory to God. In many ways, maybe to bring glory to themselves. Uh, But as Christians, we can look at those kinds of things and say, this was created by a human being, created in the image of God. And God has gifted them. God has provided the, the materials, the resources from the natural world in order to be able to bring this about. And uh, God can be glorified in all of that. Um, <clears throat> and so anyone who doubts this tendency of idolatry, remember we looked at, uh, I think last week, we looked in Exodus <laughs> as... As Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, what's going on down below? Well, there's some, there's some art going on, isn't there? <laughs> Someone's doing an, a, a sculpture project. It's all of the people with Aaron creating a golden calf. Why? What was, what was the purpose of the golden calf? What did we say last week? Good. They wanted some kind of physical representation of God so that they would have an object of worship. So it wasn't the golden calf itself that they wanted to worship, but they wanted uh, something to stand in the place of God so that when they worshiped, it wasn't to a, uh, to a formless, faceless God. Um, and so Aaron... He, uh, for all intents and purposes, we'd say he was one of God's men, right? God used Aaron in a lot of ways for Israel. And yet, his heart was very easily drawn to hear the voice of the people and to do exactly what they wanted. And so, this whole sordid episode shows exactly what happens when people pursue art for their own purposes. They end up worshiping art rather than God. They end up worshiping objects rather than God. And it's the very same thing we talked about with the serpent on the pole, remember? It had a purpose. God had a purpose for it, not as an object of worship, uh, but as a sign, a representation of what God does in redemption. And as soon as the people began to worship, uh, he wanted it destroyed, right? Uh, I think Derek and then Josh. <laughs> Give it time. Cultivate this skill, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is, uh, we, we even see the, the prophets often mock idolaters, but one of my favorite is you, you cut a piece of wood in half, essentially, and you use half of it to warm yourself and cook your food, and the other you fashion into a god for worship. So. Um, it's just a, a foolish endeavor, absolutely. Josh? Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I want, let's talk about that for a moment. Because what music, uh, especially music, uh, and I won't even deal with uh, just music outside of the realm of Christian worship, but what music often becomes in Christian worship is um, an idolatrous pursuit because we're after something different than what God intends. What is our singing for? Why do we sing in the church other than God has commanded it? But why do we do that? Why has he commanded it? What's that? For his glory, absolutely, yes. And what are we communicating in our singing? What does the Bible tell us we are to communicate in our singing? Yep, praise to God. What else? Yep, encouragement uh, to one another, right? We're singing to one another. We saw that recently in Colossians, that we are expressing the truths of God's word to those we're singing with, right? We're reminding each other of the truths of the Bible through our singing, right? We're expressing thanksgiving to God. Uh, we're expressing um, realities of the human heart and our, and our own deepest needs and wants through music and everything else. So now, is, is there, uh, intrinsically, is there emotion tied up in our music? Yes. There, there's no way around that. We are emotional beings. We have feelings, and, uh, and we should not seek to suppress those. The Lord has given them to us. However, can music be utilized in such a way that we are attempting uh, to manipulate those emotions in a way that is uh, taking our focus off of God and our worship of God and instead putting it on ourselves? Absolutely. And it happens so frequently. And it's something we need to be very careful to guard against. Uh, and there's so many ways that our our music can become idolatrous. It can become a performance for us. Uh, it can become uh, something that uh, we, if, if, you, if you find yourself to be a particularly good singer, perhaps, or you assume you are, uh, like all those people on American Idol that are horrible. No one loved them enough to tell them they were bad. And then they storm off and say, you'll be hearing from me. You'll see me. I don't need you. Uh, Amazingly, we've never seen them again. Uh, uh, yeah, on the fail clips that you can watch over and over again on YouTube, right? Um, right, if, uh, maybe, maybe you, you find yourself in that position and, and want everyone to be able to hear you. And so uh, you, you do everything you can to make sure you're heard. Or if, uh, if you find yourself in a place where you can be seen uh, so people see you. So music has a way of doing this. You know, one of the... Um, I'll say this. One of my, one of my criticisms, and uh, this is a, hopefully a, a helpful um, challenge. Um, in some churches, what you will see is, uh, if they're very large, and I don't have a problem with large churches, but they maybe meet in different locations. And so what you'll see often is that the preaching of God's word is displayed to the church on a video screen. And so they're sort of watching, uh, they're watching their pastor from a TV screen. But what will never be on a screen? The band, the music, right? And I think that communicates something of what we're trying to convey in terms of a level of importance. That one of these things has a level of importance that's far greater than the other, and therefore it needs to be experienced in person as opposed to something that we can, we can observe 
um, from a distance. Um, so, uh, right, right. Our music is one element of our worship. It is not the worship, right? And uh, and again, we want our music to be uh, to be beautiful. We want our music to be done skillfully. Uh, we want our music to be theologically sound in the words that we are singing. Uh, we want it to be singable by the church. We want it to be something that um, we, can, uh, we can have in our hearts and our minds and continue to sing throughout the week. All these things we, we want. Um, nobody, nobody wants to have uh, you know, bad, bad musicians. Um, and I thank God that we don't have that. Um, you know, on, on a platform in front of everyone just sort of giving it their best shot and all of us sort of cringe every time we hear it. Like, nobody wants that. We, and that doesn't, um, that doesn't help us in our worship. Music, uh, and especially what's performed by musicians, um, should be done skillfully and it should be done very well, as beautifully as possible, so that it's not a distraction but rather it's something uh, that we can engage in without that taking us out of being able to think about the most important part, the words that we're singing as we uh, sing to one another, as we sing unto the Lord. And so a lot is expressed there. And all of that can become something that is uh, very, uh, very much self-focused, right? There, there are I can't think of any other reason why we would start to incorporate things um, like moving, um, you know, in very old churches, what you see is, where are the musicians? Yeah, they're in the back, and oftentimes maybe up in a balcony in the back, and they're the music you hear is sort of over the, over the top of you. I think IPC still does that, right? Downtown? Yeah. Um, so you hear the music from behind you, so, um, so the musicians aren't even a factor in terms of you seeing them or uh, interacting with them in any way as you're focusing on uh, the singing. And, and so, um, you know, we've, we've tried to do some version of that, of moving things off to the side, so it's not front and center, but often what you will see is that all of this has been moved to, uh, moved to the place of, of where the word is to be proclaimed, right? And so even to where pulpits have shrunk, music stands have come out, and those become, and, uh, those become sort of the, the norm. And again, uh, all of these elements are artistic. We talked about uh, furniture in the church and the pulpit and what that communicates and the table and what that communicates and why we, why we have these elements in place and, uh, and what is being communicated when we replace those by other things. Um, and so when, when the music moves central, when the lighting is changed, when you know, all of these other things come into play, um, we're trying to accomplish something and I think the question we have to ask is, how is this aiding the church in bringing glory to God, in worshiping God uh, in a way that God requires? And so that's a, that's a question we need to ask and we need to work through. And if, if our conclusion is that it doesn't or that the tendency is more toward um, focusing on ourselves as opposed to 
a tendency toward bringing glory to God or focusing our attention on the Lord and his word, uh, then we need to figure out how to, uh, to do this better. So questions that um, anyone involved, especially in church leadership, needs to continually think about and work through. Um, so anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, so how can artists avoid making these kinds of mistakes, especially artists who are Christians? By acknowledging their artistic ability, first and foremost, is a gift from God. Whether you're a painter, a sculptor, and uh, you, you draw, you, you, um, you play an instrument, you sing, you, um, you write, you do poetry, whatever it is, these are all artistic expressions, but first and foremost, acknowledging that these things are a gift from God. Um, every, you know uh, Igor Stravinsky, anyone familiar with that name? You probably maybe at least have heard the name. Um, he said this once, he said, I take no pride in my artistic talents. They are God-given, and I see absolutely no reason to become puffed up over something that one has received. Sounds very similar to what uh, the Bible tells us, right? What do you have that you were not given, right? And in that, as artists, as, as sub-creators, as we've said, as those who are making things on this earth, we recognize uh, I wouldn't be able to make anything I have had not God created these materials in the first place and given me the ability to see how to bring them together in order to make this. And so think of something like music. What is music? Just at its very base level, what is music? Exactly. They're sound waves. They're, they're sound waves that are vibrating through the air. And so um, I had a very uh, philosophic discussion about this recently with a group of people, um, and uh, they were talking about how, um, how emotion is, um, is in the music itself. And my response was, well, how do you embed emotion into sound waves? Right? Now, these sound waves, when utilized in a certain way, uh, in a certain way of putting them together and formulating a, what we call a song from them, uh, that can bring emotion out of us. It can stir up emotion within us. But sound waves in and of themselves are not, uh, they're not emotional. They don't communicate emotion. Uh, they are simply uh, means by which we are able to create something uh, that we listen to and say is either beautiful or not beautiful. Uh, it is a very joyful noise or it is an attempt at a joyful noise or whatever it is that we, we identify it as. Um, and so <clears throat> in, in all of this, we can recognize uh, that these things are all given to us by God in a very, uh, in a very uh, if you will, um, bear with me in terms of the language, in a very natural sense, that they're part of this world in what we call the natural world. And I say it that way because I don't want to imply what, um, what the existentialists imply in terms of what this, this world is, you get what I'm saying, that we have these natural things that God is not uh, sovereign over. He certainly is. He created them and he continues to work sovereignly in them. Um, 
But we have these natural materials, whether that's sound waves or that is uh, clay or that is um, colors that come from other elements in the earth. All of them are here already by God, and we need to acknowledge that. And so artists can also avoid idolizing the arts by resisting any, um, any temptation to isolation instead of investing themselves in Christian community. Uh, one of the things you see with artists, uh, especially the ones who start to do crazy stuff toward the end of their lives, is that they isolate themselves, right? You don't get to a place where you're going to chop your own ear off if you have a Christian community around you, right? Uh, and you look at the lives of many artists and the, the mindset, and I understand this, is that in order to be creative, I need time, I need space, I need quiet, I need to be able to think and do all of these things, which is fine, but we can't do this outside of being a, a part of the living, active body of Christ. Uh, we need to be reminded day in and day out that God's people are, uh, are with us in community, that God calls us to worship Him, that our lives need to be centered on Him, and our God-centered orientation to life is the basis for uh, daily discipleship and our focus. And so uh, artists need Christian community. And so we can come to the conclusion that the true purpose of art is the same purpose of everything else in life. It's not for ourselves, ultimately. It's not for our own self-expression, ultimately, but it's for the service of others to the glory of God. If we're creating art for ourselves and ourselves alone, that's the problem with everything else that we tend to do, is that we need to die to ourselves and live for the advantage of others. And so I want to argue that as Christians, we should, if we're, if we're doing something artistic, that it should be done ultimately with a desire to, um, to serve others. Our children understand this inherently, don't they? How many stacks of um, scribble drawings do all of us have as parents? Uh, moms generally have a harder time throwing away than dads. <laughs> uh, we, we sort of... I, I've gotten to where I take a picture of them and I store them on the computer so I can get rid of the physical copy. Paperless household. <laughs> a great parenting tip. That's a pro tip after almost 11 years. You're welcome. Uh, right, they, but what are they doing? They're, they're doing, I'm drawing this picture for you, Mommy, for, for you, Daddy. Why are they doing that? Because there's a sense that this is, uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing this for myself. There's, there's really no ultimate purpose in doing this for myself. I'm doing this uh, to please you or to delight you. And in the same way, as Christians, we need to, uh, to look even beyond that. I'm doing this not to please myself, but to delight God and to help others to, to, to serve that same purpose. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm, I'm showing my inherent selfishness, my self-focus, my self-desire. So making art, ultimately then, is an expression of love, love for God and love for our neighbor, the, the summation of the Ten Commandments. And we want to be able to accomplish that. So art for God's sake and not for art's sake and not for our own sake uh, but art for God's sake, art for God's glory. Um, so think about this with regard to the tabernacle. 
And this is where God shows us art for his own sake. Every detail in the building was for the praise of God's glory. The altar and the atonement cover, also known as the mercy seat, testified to what? What was the point of the altar and the mercy seat? What does God show us in the altar? Okay, sacrifice, right? So God is showing us um, ultimately what, what did the sacrifice accomplish? It accomplishes um, now, it accomplishes uh, in Christ, we recognize it accomplishes ultimate forgiveness. Uh, in the old covenant, it's, it's rolling, essentially it's rolling their sins forward another year, another year, another year onto the cross. And so it's a, it's a picture, it's a representation of God's grace, right? So the altar and the mercy seat testify to God's grace and God's mercy. Uh, the table of the showbread, does anyone know what that was for? What is the showbread? Where the old King James says shoebread. <laughs> What's that? Okay, it's a, it's, it, it is tied to manna, yes? Yeah, yeah, good. So we have these pictures of God's provision and God's providence in the midst of all these things, right? Of the lampstand, what does the lampstand do? Depicted actually in the Jewish menorah. What is the lampstand? Yeah, the light of the world, that we have, uh, we have this spreading of the light, uh, the, the light of God is being spread and shown. Uh, even things that were not symbolic in the tabernacle that were for God. This is why the tabernacle was made so carefully. Right? The details. You ever get in the middle of those details in your, your Bible reading plan? Uh, you get into Exodus and you start to read. You're like, all right, this year I'm going to do it. <laughs> and you get through the first chapter of the details. You're like, all right, good. Got some golden threads. Got some uh, silver eyelets. And then you get into the second chapter, you're like, all right, I'm slowing down a little bit, right? What are all these details? What is all of that about? Why is the Lord so detailed about how this thing is to be created? Why don't they just throw up a tent and call it good? Yeah. So this is, this is a big part of this, that the Lord establishes that worship and encounters with him, interactions with him, are according to certain patterns. And the Lord gives us pattern all throughout the Bible with relationship to our worship, doesn't he? Um, think of uh, the Lord's Prayer, for example. What is that? It's a pattern for prayer. And, uh, and we, we see that. The Psalms give us a pattern for our singing and, and uh, our, our praise to God in, in that uh, form of art. So uh, we have a pattern established. What else? Why else is, are the details so important? Yeah, Heather. Yes, exactly. Very well stated. It's a reflection of God's character, a reflection of God's nature, a reflection, as we've said, of God's beauty, of who he is and what he wants us to take note of, to, to, to recognize about him and what he has done and what he is doing in redemption and creation. Yeah, Derek. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and uh, 
you know, I think we, we can tend to have a, a mindset where we think of those kinds of things and say, well, why, why would we spend a few thousand dollars to have something like this? Can't we just, you know, get a music stand and set it up there for $30, $40? Can't we just get some wood from behind the 500 building and piece it together and make some kind of pulpit that we can utilize? It'll be fine. What's the, what's the point? This, that's a lot of money to spend on something like this, right? Or a church building. You often hear people say, well, we don't need buildings. We don't need, uh, we can meet under a tree and worship as the church. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But that doesn't seem to be a great concern to the Lord. In fact, we kind of see the opposite, don't we? That he took great care in articulating exactly what it was that he wanted and how he wanted it uh, displayed in the space where he was to be worshipped. That it was very specific. And not only was it very specific, it was very expensive. Gold has always been expensive. Great uh, hedge uh, of uh, investment protection, by the way. Invest in gold and silver. Uh, it's, it's always been that way, right? And, and so as a result, we can look at that and say, uh, you know, our, our way of thinking is uh, very much what you heard um, among, um, well, remember, uh, for example, when... Um, when Jesus had, his, uh, had the expensive perfumes poured on him, what was, what was being said about that? What a waste. What can this money be used for? It can be used to, uh, to feed the poor, right? And, uh, and Jesus rebuked soundly as a result of that, right? And so can there be excess? Of course there can be excess. But do we, uh, do we just um, for utilitarian purposes make our decisions as to how uh, we design the very space and the very um, gathering uh, that, we, uh, that we bring together for the worship of God. Well, the Lord was very specific and had very intricate design in mind and very expensive design in mind. And that's not to say what we do has to be expensive, uh, but that in and of itself, the fact that something is expensive or intricate doesn't make it ungodly or a waste. Yeah, Tyler. Right, exactly. And, uh, and certainly, <laughs> there, there is a lot of waste that takes place. And, and often, what are those kinds of things created to depict? Again, it goes back to this question of who is this for and what is this for? What purpose is it serving ultimately to bring glory to God or to the artist or to ourselves? Um, and so, uh, non-Christian as well as Christian artists can represent these things we're talking about. Virtue, beauty, truth. These things we've discussed along the way. It's important to remember that God in his own wisdom didn't just give these gifts to Christians. Right, we have all kinds of very gifted, very talented people in this world um, that create beautiful things um, that are not Christians. But even if God may be glorified by art that is not explicitly offered in his honor, he is most truly praised when, uh, when he is glorified in the aim of art itself, in its actual creation. 
And so we could hear something. Um, I keep mentioning it, and I'll have to play it at some point. We can hear Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number 3 and just be absolutely floored by it. But recognize at the same time, this wasn't written with God's glory in mind, and yet at the same time it glorifies God. Versus listening to um, uh, a cantata by Bach, by Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote intentionally to bring praise and glory to God. And he signed the end of his song, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so one is more glorifying to God than the other, but both of them glorify God in their beauty and in their artistry. And so we can recognize that, but recognize as Christians uh, that we have a, uh, a specific calling, uh, especially Christian artists have a specific calling in bringing glory to God, uh, is especially in what we're doing in the creation of it. So this doesn't mean that all of our art has to be evangelistic in the sense that it explicitly invites people to believe in Christ or that we need to, uh, you know, write John 3.16 somewhere on, uh, on our, our piece of art. But it glorifies God uh, by being done well to the best of our ability, utilizing the skills that God has given us. And so a Christian who makes cars silly example, doesn't need to write John 3.16 on the side of their car. They should make a really good car, right? And similarly, artists who, who glorify God by making good art, whether, uh, whether or not it, it contains an explicit gospel message, can still glorify God in its beauty and its artistry. Uh, sculptors through sculptures, architects through beautiful buildings, and on and on we can, uh, we can say that the calling for Christians is not... Uh, that everything we do and everything we say and everything we create has to be um, explicitly evangelistic, uh, but that it gives glory to God in how uh, the truth and beauty of the world is being portrayed in what we are doing and what we are trying to display. Um, well, let me, let me end there. Any, any uh, final thoughts, comments, questions about any of this discussion today. Derek? Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. That's very well stated. I love that. Anything else? All right, next week, uh, hopefully, we'll be able to tackle the question, is God an artist? Chew on that this week as you're chewing on turkey. <laughs>